Hello, welcome to Imperfect World. I'm your host, Christopher Hobson. In this episode, I speak with David Cayley, who spent much of his career producing long-form radio programs for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. As part of this work, Cayley recorded a series of interviews with Ivan Illich, whose thinking on the way that technologies are reshaping people, as well as his critiques of major societal institutions, have been rediscovered in recent years. In 2021, Cayley published Ivan Illich, An Intellectual Journey, which explores the life and work of this powerful thinker. My conversation with Cayley circles around some big issues present in his thought and Illich's, including the role of science in society, how to think about technology, the importance of limits, surprise, and much more. I hope you find this as thought-provoking as I did. For more information, please check my substack, Imperfect Notes on an Imperfect World, where I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So I think one of the ways which uh, you talk about and is also there in Illich's work is is also the way um, science and and belief in, in science has almost has yeah has taken on the form of of a belief, and in modern society um, we turn to science as a way of uh, finding meaning and also trying to uh, understand understand the world. Uh, so I thought, could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, the role that science has come to play? And I think here I'd be very interested in also hearing your reflections from, from the work that you were doing with the the how to think about science series well i i made the mistake or i had the good fortune depending on how you look at it one day remarking to my executive producer at ideas at the canadian broadcasting corporation um that i thought that that the object science had dramatically changed uh, its character in our time. And his ears kind of pricked up. And I thought, oh, dear, <laughs> here I go. <laughs> what have I talked myself into? And that became, uh, when I tried to execute my idea, it became, I think, the longest single-authored radio series, certainly in the history of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, <laughs> and made me a nightly laughing stock on a, an earlier program where it was promoted every night. And, you know, guess what's on ideas again tonight, folks? <laughs> you know, so it was 24 broadcasts. But, but what I tried to do was to just sketch in a little bit of uh, what I saw as a potentially revolutionary change in the understanding of the sciences. So you could go back to Ludwig Fleck, uh, uh, Genesis of a Scientific Fact, who was then revived by Thomas Kuhn uh, in his Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and then pick up in the 70s a movement that gradually gains 
momentum. I would say that for the general reader, probably Steve Shapin and Simon Schaffer's Leviathan and the Air Pump uh, was an epoch in that unfolding story. I think some of Bruno Latour's work has has reached uh, a wider audience. But we have a broad movement in the history and philosophy of science, which begins to give you a realistic picture of what the sciences do, uh, what, what they are and what they aren't, right? So the first move is to pluralize the word, right? Is to show you that there's, there's, there, you can abstract from all sciences and create something called science. You, maybe you have identified some general character. Most people believe there's something called a scientific method, but none can say what it is. Uh, in such a way that it would apply to geology as well as physics. Um, so, but the way the discourse, political discourse in Canada runs during the pandemic is that we follow science as if science were an oracle, as if it were a unitary uh, thing, and as if it were an oracular voice that gives you clear instructions. You go to Delphi, you ask science, science tells you what to do. Um, so um, I, I invested great hope in this movement in the history and philosophy of science. Illich, in 1973, in a book called Tools for Conviviality, um, had specified three conditions for what he called recovery. So recovery from the, the excesses of modernity, you could call it re-inhabitation, the conditions he thought would be necessary for a, a, a permanent, a relatively permanent and convivial human habitation on Earth. And the first of them was to overcome the delusion about science. The second and third are recovery of language and you, the recovery of law as a as a as a procedure for, for, for limiting exploitation. But anyway, set the other two aside. The delusion about science, the delusion about science is, is essentially, I think, this mystification, that there is this single thing called science, which produce this, produces this single staple called scientific knowledge that is entitled to uh, trump every other form of judgment. So there, there is no other voice that one needs to hear. Um, so it, it's, it's uh, as well as the mystification of science, it's also the deprecation of practical judgment of, 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 of it's really, in Latour's terms, it's the end of politics mm. uh, because there's always a trump that can be played. and. And, and never more so now when this seemingly has all been exposed to view. So, I mean, I think a crucial element of understanding the pandemic for me is that it's a, as, as a reactionary move, as, an, as a desperate attempt to shore up all these idols, of which science is a main one. 
uh, and the number of people who uh, know less about science than I've forgotten, not to be vain, uh, who have called me anti-science <laughs> in the last few years is just astonishing. Uh, you well, you man. only have to raise a critical consideration to be called anti-science. So that's remarkable. But anyway, so this this work, I thought, had great promise, great hope, and, and I'm I'm afraid, you know that that has been at least put on the shelf for the time being. Well, I, mean, I think what's interesting, in, in, especially in, in the context of the pandemic, is you have these two uh, understandings of, of science effectively hitting up against each other because there is this desire to have science with a big S as one unified voice where um, politicians can say the science tells us this, the models tell us that, and science is uh, a uniform body of, of knowledge and can be taken in an unquestionable kind of manner. And then this, this second way of thinking about science as um, something which is a, a profoundly human endeavor and engagement with a world that is that is not controlled or determined by humans, but the way that we make sense of it is very much um, shaped by our beliefs and our values. And this will unavoidably be a contested process. And with the pandemic, you've effectively had on a global scale uh, the experience of watching the sausage being made and seeing what contested science looks like. And yeah. everyone likes eating sausages, nobody likes making sausages. Uh, and, and so I think you've had these kind of the these two different ways of thinking about science really bumping up and, and hitting against each other. And, and the desire for science to give one clear unambiguous answer with a, a much more kind of complex and contested reality, which has been then playing out in real time. And mm -hmm. we've really been seeing experiences, well, this is how um, scientific knowledge is, is generated. Uh, and, so I, and, and maybe this is part of the reason where some of these social pressures and tensions are coming from now is because of this uh, disjuncture um, or this dissonance between the what, uh, like the desire for science with a big S and the reality of of, of kind of contesting sciences. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that's right. Um, and. I think also, at least from my own experience, is you know, perhaps you also would have found this when you started going down that that rabbit hole. Is uh, maybe the way that that, that we're we're taught and, and trained is that it's it's much more comfortable to think about science as something uh, rather 
uh, uncontested and, and settled. Uh, I remember when I was first uh, doing research on, on nuclear energy and uh, looking at research, which was making the point that, um, you know, even something like how you uh, qualify, well, which countries are considered um, nuclear countries is is an open question because do you base it around the countries that um, have, um, you know, the capacity to mine the uranium or uh, uh, miners working in the mines where the uranium is, is being dug up, do they count as nuclear workers? Well, depending on how you categorize that, well, then either that's that they're nuclear or not nuclear, right? So um, at one point, South Africa was, was considered as, you know, being a nuclear country because of, uh, of, of what they were mining. And so yeah. you have these categories where you think, this is as uncontestable as it gets. But again, these are, these are categories which are still socially constructed and socially mediated and therefore uh, open to, to contestation. And I think one thing uh, which is present in, in that series and then it's also present in, in, in your work and in Illich's work is is also the, the consequences that come from um, science with a capital S effectively being a way of uh, avoiding or uh, displacing the, the role of politics and the role of moral judgment. And uh, there's a, a really fantastic line in, in your book to quote, Moral questions about what is good have been overshadowed by technical questions about what is possible. Mm -hmm. And I think this captures something really powerful. And uh, one of the consequences of, of this, uh, I guess, excessive belief or reliance of, of science is a downplaying of of uh, politics and of, of moral judgment. Um, do you have any response to that before we move on? Well, yes, I mean, my I um, one of my inspirations um, is Bruno Latour. Uh, although I, I think we don't agree about everything. And I think his approach is quite distinctly different from Illich's. But I think Latour has made some wonderful arguments. And uh, perhaps best recently in a book uh, on Gaia called Facing Gaia, which was his Gifford lectures in 2013. And he... he has a law, an argument developed in many books about science as the voice of nature. So this is this is a religious displacement occurring in the 17th century primarily and creating what he calls the modern constitution. We needn't go into that. But science as the voice of nature, of how things are, as we will discover, uh, 
is must be segregated from and and kept strictly separate from opinion, which is what politics is about. Right? So the essential revolution, which I tried to talk about before in this movement in the history and philosophy of science, is to show that science um, is opinion of a certain kind. That, that there's, to, in other words, to deny this whole modern constitution and to call for a new constitution of knowledge and a new constitution of society to re-understand the whole matter. It doesn't mean that science isn't well-founded opinion. It may be well be the best-founded opinion. And in, it's interesting that in facing Gaia, Latour is trying uh, to argue that, that climate change is indeed an urgent, pressing, catastrophic crisis. But he doesn't want to say, you must accept it because science says. He wants to say that this is contingent knowledge developed from highly sophisticated models with many assumptions in them. It's, it's the repetition of millions of instances. It's, 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 it's not standing on a concrete foundation. It's the best one can do to model the unimaginably complex dynamics of the atmosphere and gain as sh sure knowledge as one can of, of what is going on. So his claim is that that knowledge has to enter the political arena and speak for itself, right? That the, that the scientist must not enter politics because he's the priest of nature is the primary problem. So for Latour, politics has to revive as a genuine pluralism, right? That there are real positions here, that they're really different, that, they, that there are many tribes and many things. And of course, it's always been a great part of Latour's argument that there are many things in our politics that are neither people nor nature, but are what he began to call hybrids 40 years ago, uh, of which climate change is a prime example, right? This is a, a compound of humanity and nature. <clears throat> so, so that that has to really become a new politics, uh, a new, you know, hopefully based on an ethics of peace. I think that would be Bruno's hope. Uh, but, but that it is, you recognize real difference. Now, I would say that in my old employer, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, is, is more than ever uh, transfixed by a myth of unanimity, that it so easily says we, what we think, what we feel. It so easily looks on the truck convoy going to Ottawa as social enemies. We don't need to hear from them. We don't need to speak to them. Um, but that'd be just one example. I mean, the climate change denier was around long before the COVID denier, the anti-vaxxer. I mean, there's a whole 
array of scarecrows uh, that are being kept out of the discussion as if there's no discussion to be had, as if there's nothing to talk about. It's just, if we just have to keep browbeating people until they recognize the authority of science uh, or the authority of whatever it is. So there's a new vision of politics there, and there's certainly a new vision of broadcasting as a genuine pluralism, as a genuine inquiry, uh, and not as uh, a dogmatic operation, um, which is and of which the dogma has long ago been agreed on. Mm, yeah, so I mean, I th- that's, I think- that's just to be that's a stab at an answer to your huge question. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's um, we could we could talk for hours uh, about this, but I mean, I, I think it is it is really I think important and useful to think about the way that you have this um, uh, your contestation and. Uh, lack of certitude in 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 many of the sciences and and the way that it's still then possible to to reach uh, conclusions and and also develop uh, knowledge about the world. But then what is made of that knowledge then becomes a a political question and how these different spheres relate uh, is, I think, set definitely something we we are collectively uh, struggling struggling to work out yeah. and one of the things which I personally have have found quite challenging uh, from the, the experience of the pandemic is as somebody who has been very concerned about climate change and very, willing to accept the arguments uh, made about the severity of of climate change, Uh, really looking at the the way that the the problems that come from using models uh, in, in, in the real world and the uh, incredibly significant limitations we have on on trying to to model and and make sense of um, incredibly complex systems and the way models have have been used in in the pandemic is um, well maybe they um maybe they were accurate and then as a result of the changes of behavior that they brought about uh, they were subsequently disproved, or, or maybe the assumptions yeah. that were being yeah. fed into the models were um, completely uh, incorrect assumptions leading to incorrect models, which then led to um, poor uh, decisions in terms of policy and behaviour. And it becomes incredibly, incredibly difficult to to break break apart the the events and and the non-events and, and make sense of it. And I think the only thing, at least I've been able to take from that, is uh, a position of much greater humility and caution about what we can, what knowledge we can take from from the models that we're using. 
Well, I, I, I feel like Illich was a real help to me here because I wandered somewhat innocently into the climate wars of, in the about 15 years ago. I had, I would say, been somewhat agnostic until reading a series of uh, essays by Elizabeth Colbert, a writer in The New Yorker. Uh, called Field Notes, from, and she published these essays in the New Yorker as Field Notes from a Catastrophe. It was very, uh, it was sophisticated journalism, scientifically sophisticated journalism. I found it persuasive. Uh, and around that time, a little bit later, a friend of mine, someone I'd known for years, a conservative environmentalist in, in Toronto, and not in the employ of any oil company, began a series of columns in, in uh, a newspaper uh, based on a dare from a friend saying that he couldn't find scientifically, find scientifically respectable dissent on the subject of climate change. So uh, my friend proceeded to find lots of res scientifically respectable dissent and publish it. And that became a book called The Deniers published around 2008, 2009. And because this was somebody I knew, and also the, the writer is Larry Solomon, uh, but also because I found it challenging, right? I thought it was challenging on exactly the grounds you're saying. Well, what if ice cores don't give you quite such reliable information as, as you thought? Or what about the medieval uh, warm period? How is that to be explained on the theory that carbon dioxide levels are the only relevant datum here. Lots of questions. So I thought, okay, I better get Larry on the air and we'll talk about this, right? This is an open forum. I just got hammered by listeners and hammered in a way that shocked me. That's how innocent I was because I thought I had, I would have had some standing with them, right? I've been doing this for a long time, right? I wasn't endorsing what Larry said. I was, just bringing another perspective. No, there was no other perspective to be had. So um, now, how did Illich help me? Well, Ivan was a great one for, uh, for going back to the early 70s now, for defining the roof. What's, what's a decent way of life? What is the roof of technological characteristics, he says, under which we could live and be happy, right? So he's, he's saying in the 70s that we will lose our souls, that we will lose our humanity, that we will enter into a, a total artifice if we don't make limits to speed limits to technique generally, right? So if you take that view, then there are plenty of good reasons, uh, solidly founded in your own tradition or in one's own tradition, to, to pull in your horns, to not take a vacation in the Dominican Republic every winter, to not have air conditioning uh, just because it's hot for two months in Canada. And so on, right? There are many, many grounds on which to con 
serve, to live modestly, and so on. So that it doesn't matter as much whether the climate right model is right or wrong, whether 1.5 degrees is going to be reached next week or 30 years from now, whether three degrees is too much or what two would be all right, or you don't. It's somewhat maddening to live in the future. Mm. The pandemic has, has shown that this can become a mass madness. It can become a, a, I mean, really people are living in the, living entirely in the future almost and, and living in an almost completely disembodied way. So he gives grounds for which one could, without necessarily mm. needing the scientific imprimatur, that's my word for the day, I guess, uh, to, to say that's the right thing to do. It's already the right thing to do. It's already the right thing to limit speed. It's already the right thing to have a small car and to share it, right? You know, mm. I doesn't, it doesn't depend on who wins the climate debate. No, I'm very, I'm very happy you, you took this in, 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 in that direction because it was something that was was, was certainly in my mind right? that that even if uh, the 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 contemporary way our society is structured and we live was was not wrecking the environment, there are. Uh, a whole bunch of very, very, very good reasons for <laughs> yes. um, for why we we shouldn't be necessarily living in, in the way that that we we live. Well, well, your nuclear your nuclear issue uh, perfectly enucleates the question because it's the obvious solution, right? Mm. So maybe it's expensive, but I mean it doesn't. The carbon emission, we reduce carbon emissions. Let's have more nuclear power. Well, we, maybe we don't want more nuclear power. Maybe we don't mm. want any nuclear power. You know, it's it puts the, it puts the question on a different footing. So, yeah, I mean the 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 the, the nuclear example is is um, I mean I learned so much from 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 my work on it because. Being being in Japan in 2011 when when the Fukushima disaster happened, um, first of all, uh, you know, for the first serious time, having to think about well, when I plug in my laptop, where does that power come from? Uh, what is the source of that power? Uh, what are the consequences of that? Uh, of, of where that power is coming from? What type of risks uh does that come with what type of decisions are being made about what type of risks are acceptable and acceptable for whom and, and what ones are being ignored uh and and all these are questions that that i don't think about and haven't thought about but but are clearly relevant for for, for, for me and, and and reflect a whole bunch of very serious um political economic uh, social questions, and I mean, even built into it was this this incredible inequality of Fukushima producing power for Tokyo and replicating 
um, the same type of uh, hierarchies that had, had been there for hundreds of years in, in, in Japan. Previously, it was Fukushima sending, sending rice to, to the capital and now it's sending power. And, and that, that's leaving uh, that, that region at, at risk. And then, you know, as, actually as a result of all the subsequent work uh, I did on nuclear power, um, I, I personally moved from a position of being uh, strongly anti-nuclear without any real understanding to becoming uh, moderately pro-nuclear um, in the context of the, the options that, that, that we have available. So it was also a very powerful experience yeah, for me in terms of, um, you know, learning um, what I didn't know and also having the capacity to, 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 to change my, 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 my beliefs. And I say my beliefs because that's what they were. They weren't really yeah. uh, strongly grounded on, on, on really engaging seriously in the topic um but but you know on a societal level there's really not much uh space for for that for those types of of discussions uh or, or, or engagement um and so i think this is a really powerful powerful uh idea so so in a way we don't need science to make a really strong set of arguments for a, uh, a world uh, without limits, um, to, to use Wendell Berry's terminology, an extractive society. Uh, you know, these are, are not necessarily things that we should be wanting uh, or pursuing and, and have negative consequences from a political and from a, a moral perspective. Uh, so maybe it's a good point to turn to talk a bit more specifically about Illich's critique of technology because I think this is a really central to contemporary interests uh, on him and I think Tools for Conviviality uh, has really captured something very powerful that speaks to the present moment. Um, so could you perhaps talk a bit about uh, that work and also the way that he saw the how technological systems were really changing the way that 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 people were thinking and the lives that they were living. Well, I th I think there's two stages to it. Um, the tools for conviviality, 1973, was the closest Ivan ever came to a general statement or, or a philosophy and he was very much focused on um, on the, the times he lived in the occasions that presented themselves which he wanted to address so he never did he was not at all a systematic thinker and didn't aspire to be one but tools for conviviality really does say you know unless there are limits to tools uh, unless there's some way to talk about tools. And he always used the term tools in preference to technology, which was already an interesting move because mm. uh, it, a tool for him, it could be a, a battleship or a school system mm. or a hammer. I mean, they were all engineered means to an end. 
Um, so he said that there had to be enoughness had to be discovered where, where it, he did, he never said that you would, that that would be a fixed point. You could legislate it forever, but that there would have to be some consideration of balances and you would see where the balance rested. So it was a dynamic exercise, but it, it did necessarily eventuate in the definition of a roof or a point of balance. So he, his primary metaphor at that time for the society he was living in was industrial society, right? He didn't call it bourgeois society anymore, but he called it industrial society. Uh, and so he, he, as he said later, he addressed the public as, as a public which stood apart from these tools, right? That they could conceivably change them, right? The, the, the house cleaning he called for in the health professions was something that could be undertaken, right? The medical establishment, he says in the famous first line of medical nemesis, has become a major threat to health. But there is such a thing as the medical establishment, just as uh, people use school systems in a certain way or they, you know, nuclear power in a certain way, medicine in a certain way. Always the implication of a public, uh, a user that stands apart from the technological system. So the great revelation, the great and and disturbing revelation of his later years, which I think began to occur in the 1980s. And he says this uh, very explicitly in a, the first book I published of conversation with him called Ivan Elich in Conversation. He says that he, had, he was surprised to find that the world seemed to be going, crossing a watershed that he had not expected to see in his time. In other words, that the very axioms of thought, right, the very stuff of thought was changing. Uh, the, the strands that wove a hemp rope were suddenly weaving a nylon rope. I, you know, he used different mm. metaphors. And that this was quite uh, an unnerving uh, experience. So that when he came, Back to medical nemesis, when he was asked to write on it after, let's say, 10 years had elapsed, he said, well, yes, that's fine what I said, but there is no medical, there's now no visible medical establishment. There's a medical system within which the former establishment now function as fully absorbed functionaries of the system with which they are effectively identical so something something has collapsed uh we could call this later we could see it as the frontier between mass media and digital media but it's 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 certainly the frontier between industrial and cybernetic or information society so that was a that's a huge 
change. And a lot of what he says about it is, is um, if it were just taken at its face value, it would be pretty depressing because you, you, you no longer have a public to address in a certain way. You no longer have an agent of change who could conceivably change the behavior of the system. Now, he was an older man when he made this discovery and he, he investigated, but he, 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 he just said what he could see of it, right? Uh, he, he said what he could see of the nature of systems. So there are, there are really two phases to his work on technology. One is, is the analysis of tools and one is, is the much sketchier analysis of systems that occurs in his later writing. Well, I mean, I think coming back to, you know, this, this idea of, of, of Illich holding, holding a candle, um, I think, you know, his, his idea about this moving into an age of systems is, is very much him with a candle walking out ahead of us because I think he certainly captures something in those, those sketches which has become much more fully apparent in, in in the subsequent uh, decades, I mean, in, in your book you have this this line from Illich. Uh, I'm not sure which essay it's taken from, but he says, "I am concerned about how to keep awake in the computer age," and yeah. I I find this this line just um, captures something really really powerful. I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, sleeping and waking in the context of the contemporary world. Uh, and and I, I, I think often of Hannah Arendt's talks uh, when she's talking about uh, the banality of evil and Eichmann and she talks about um, thoughtlessness. She talks about uh, these people as being sleepwalkers. Mm-hmm. And... This this sense of sleepwalkers having this um, very incomplete agency, right? They're doing things, but not necessarily consciously doing things or being in control of what they're doing. Uh, and I think implicit within this idea of age of systems is is uh, individual actors. They do things, so there is a certain type of agency, but insofar as, as, as they're part of a system, this is not really um, a particularly um, complete sense of, of agency or control. Um, and so you're, you're left with a rather impoverished um, set of, of, of possibilities for, for action. Uh, yeah. I mean, the sleepwalkers idea is very important to me. Uh, And I I think the term has been used many times. One of the times that impressed me was in uh, a memoir of uh, Karl Polanyi's, the economic historian, about the beginning of the First World War. The the people, in a sense, that they thought would be a bit of a lark, uh, you know, a kind of salutary bloodletting all over by Christmas and so on, right? So, the sleepwalking, but but then uh, I've since, I mean, I've I think it, it's 
all great events seem to have this character. They present themselves um, as, as uh, the, what has already been unconsciously made uh, then emerges with the with its seeming its seeming cause. Mm. The effects have preceded it. This is a, yeah. a remark I remember Marshall McLuhan making. Like mm. I, lately, I've been studying how effects precede their cause. <laughs> but you know, nine eleven would be another good example of that, right? Mm. It seems like the next morning, uh, everybody knew what it meant, right? Mm. That this, which was, you know, you couldn't deny it was an astonishing coup de théâtre accomplished by these conspirators but did it necessarily mean something uh did it mean it would be a good idea to invade iraq for example uh you know it, it but the meaning was taken as given and the pandemic again had that character right mm. everyone knew immediately um that one sh what that what one should do was something that would have been completely verboten in in public health a day before or a week before or a month before and lots of older public health professionals pointed this out you know that that we we don't quarantine the well you know we don't quarantine the well mm. we, we quarantine the sick that's how we do it no suddenly everyone knew that quarantining the well was just the right idea just the ticket and 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 even to the point in Ontario where a former chief medical officer of health, a man I know, he was mm -hmm. 10 years as, as our chief public health officer in Ontario, he wrote a critical, he gave a critical interview, this is in March 2020, with the CBC, where he had been a staple. Mm -hmm. They were always calling, calling Richard Chavis. He was canceled that day. Because he questioned whether lockdown would be a sensible policy and other things, and 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 he he actually uncovered the email trail mm. uh, and made a complaint to the ombudsman. And what they said was, this goes back to our earlier conversation: having him on the air will be equivalent to having a climate change denier on the air. So you weren't allowed to even raise a question about what had, in my opinion, been, and I think this is demonstrable, a revolutionary change in public health practice, at least revolutionary in the sense of a revolution, mm. <laughs> uh, had, had been implemented and could not be criticized without ever being discussed. I mean, it's a pretty prime example of sleepwalking. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I also... Obviously, uh, that, word, that word is a, is a trigger for me. I'm very happy because it's uh, it's it's been on my mind. It's interesting you also brought up the parallel with 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 9/11 because something I've also been thinking about there is uh, Adam Curtis's documentary series, The Power of Nightmares, where he talks about the role that um, you know fear and effectively. Um, you know, this this leads to building up a kind of a 
an image of the threat of terrorism, which is actually completely different from the reality of terrorism. And then it is actually the, the fear and the image of terrorism, which then generates kind of subsequent realities in counterterrorism. And, right. and so then we, we, we live in a world generated by our nightmares. And, um, yeah, I think there's, there's certainly uh, a kind of, of parallel in, in our contemporary moments where um, we are, are living in the, the realm of, of fear and non-events and possibilities and, and models about what may or may not happen, um, which, which then leads to a very... A very, a very strange, a very strange set of set of realities, and, and mm-hmm. maybe to to connect this to another important theme, which I wanted to to talk about, is um, the the role of surprise, and surprise is obviously very important for, for Illich's thought, and uh, I would presume also it's something that that, that you value, and. One of the things that you talk about in, 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 in the book is precisely how we have entered a world where uh, we don't like surprises and we don't want surprises and we do as much as possible to uh, control for and avoid surprises by turning everything into a world of, of, of risk and probabilities. And, and I think the... You use the expression from uh, Ian Hacking about the taming of chance, right? So basically, yes. trying trying to to remove the unexpected, and you know, in a way, the pandemic has been this societal experience of of facing something genuinely novel and unexpected, and and collectively not being able to deal with a surprise. Um, yes, I think it, 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 that's really interesting. I mean, uh, I'm an admirer of this book of Ian Hacking, who's, who's a philosopher and historian of science. And it does, I think, make a plausible case that that's one of the primary definitions of modernity. Um, but Illich uh, always said and, and gave evidence of it in how he lived that he, he wished, he hoped for surprises, he said, right? That somebody would turn up that would change his direction rather than that he would have, I mean, that's, that's one way and that's one of his distinctions as an intellectual is he's, he's the opposite of the, the systematic thinker who has a great insight and then plows that furrow for the rest of his life. And I, I bless uh, such thinkers that have learned much from them, but Ivan is, is the opposite, right? You don't know what's going to come next because it depends who he's going to meet or what uh, what's going to happen. So surprise uh, characterizes him across the board. Now, if you, if you see Illich as a, as a, a Christian apologist, then you, you will see cipher. You'll see surprise as a cipher for the messianic, 
But mm. I think it's much more than that, right? It's it really is it really is what it says. It means something that not only is not expected, but cannot be expected, right? Mm. Uh, it 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 means it's whether fundamentally I I or I, by extension, we uh, are in charge and should be in charge. So we should control all eventualities. And the, I mean, the pandemic is an amazing example of an attempt to control all eventualities when I think it's certain that within five to 20 years, when all the perverse eventualities are calculated, it, it will be seen. And when we find out what really was going on and how many people died of COVID and how many people died with COVID and how many people actually had COVID when we used a test that was, was acknowledged by even its maker to be unreliable and not fit for the purpose for which it was being used and so on. When, when it's all said and done, I think the perverse eventualities will will clearly be shown to have been overwhelming. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Mm. The idea was there. This can be controlled, right? This must be controlled. Right? So yeah, it's it's so powerfully there. But if if you try to exert that kind of control, then you can't be surprised, right? Mm. You live in order not to be surprised. There's nothing, and this I think then turns on the metaphor of information, which we which we just brushed against before in talking about the two phases of Illich's career, right? That that information is what is the same all the way down. It's mm. it's transparent. We see everyone's striving for transparency now, as if as if that's the greatest good, right? Data. This this pandemic has revealed horrendous gaps in our data system in Canada. We're constantly hearing that we need more data, right? So eventually the 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 data aspiration seems to be that it'll be like that figure, I think, in Borges is one of his stories has a map that's as big as the world, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's any reference kind of to Borges, I'm, I'm a fan of any reference to him. This is, uh... but isn't isn't there such a thing as this map that's as big as yep. the world? Yeah, yeah. So, but information really is. I mean, you know, if I were at the beginning of my life, rather than near the end of it, maybe I would leave a data trail that would be nearly as long as my life. Mm. It would be almost a map as big as the world. Uh, so that that aspiration to know all, to see all, to itemize all, which is also a kind of positivism about science, right? That science plainly, unambiguously sees to whatever depth you wish to see that all is laid open, all is laid bare, all is transparent, all is information or data. Then you know that's a world in which. Surprise hasn't got a chance, right? Uh, it's it's a very flat landscape. 
I mean, so, I think yeah. surpri- surprise was, and the most, I have to quote a sentence that I'm always quoting from him, but, but when he describes the incarnation, which is the presence of God in Jesus Christ, he says that for him, this is a surprise, remains a surprise, and could not exist as anything else is a surprise, remains a surprise, and could not exist as anything else. Now that's an amazing statement, and and uh, you know not the way people normally think mm. about you know. Surely this was God's plan. One hears a lot about the plan of salvation, mm. right, in Christianity. And uh, could not exist as anything else. So if Mary had said no to the angel, that would have been it. Mm. Or maybe an angel would have asked somebody else and got a yes eventually, but it wouldn't have been the same story. Mm. It wouldn't have started just where it started. It would have started somewhere else. So that's that's an amazing willingness to be in the moment to live on the razor's edge, the candle. Mm. We don't know who's going to come. We don't know who's going to show up, but things will be different when the one who is going to show up does show up and, and, and things change. So I get asked a lot, you know, what would Illich say? What would Illich do? You know, but in fact, he was, he was on the spur of the moment, trying to understand what was going on, right? And he said uh, of the future, to hell with the future. Mm. It's a man-eating idol. the world we want is one where we can flick on a light switch and we can see everything clearly whereas <laughs> the reality is we need to accept the light switch is not possible and we have the uh, you know more traditional candle where we can only ever um, see incompletely and and that 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 complete, uh, light and clarity where we know and understand everything is 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 is, is not possible and, and perhaps also a, a dangerous thing to try to aim for and we're left um, seeing as best we can with the candle um, and and living also with that 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 darkness and that mystery being being present well I think that's right and I think that's very much Ivan yeah then mm. That and I think that then when you get into issues of science, right, then it you you can get mesmerized and think, well, oh, you know, we need to if only my position prevailed or we had the real the right science, right? That the problem with the pandemic is we've had the wrong science, right? And the 
the right science has been marginalized or not reported at all. But, and that might be true. Mm. I think it is true, actually. <laughs> but, but, but limits to knowledge is a, is a separate question, right? And it, it is and certainly the crucial question is what else, you know, is, is, is to allow, yeah. Mm. Is is to allow the darkness and to see also. I mean, this is comes back to complementarity. Um, that that these are mutually constituting. Right? Mm. That there there may be. I mean, what's tremendously important to me? I don't I don't know that Ivan ever mentioned this, but. In Nicholas of Cusa, who was a 15th century um, Christian uh, churchman and, and mystic, uh, he, he has a book called The Vision of God, in which he said that, that God appears to us right up to the wall of paradise, that's his metaphor, as a complexio oppositorum. So this was a phrase that Carl Jung uh, took on board, a complex of opposites. Mm. We, we can't. So shy of the wall of paradise, we see paradox. We see complementarity. We, we see. And then, but he says there's, a, there's a, an entranceway in the wall uh, when the angels are seen coming and going. This is his vision. But. Presumably beyond the wall, it's the conditions are different. Perhaps it's dark. They they go, perhaps it's silent, right? You go on in darkness, you go on in silence. But there's there's a wall, there's a limit. There's a limit to knowledge, there's a limit to what we can say, right? And and I think one lives very different, one lives very differently in view of that limit. Than one lives, uh, insofar as one has a belief in the unlimited, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I think we should respect the the limit of people's attention spans. <laughs> the, the limits of the limits of our means. capacity to focus. So I think now is a is a good point to to finish. So so thank you very much, David. For this has been a really wonderful. Uh, conversation and, and very uh, yeah enlightening and, and enriching so, so thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me well my pleasure it was, I was, it was a joy to, to meet you and talk with you and uh, you know I'm in Toronto you're in Japan that's very nice That was my conversation with David Cayley, recorded in February 2022. It was produced with support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hosen. For more information, please check my website, ChristopherHobson.net, and my Substack, ImperfectNotes.substack.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World. <laughs>